Hello. This is Sue, our producer. Hi, Sue. Hi, nice to meet you. Come after you. I'm going to take you out of the sunshine and lead you down to our bunker. Alright, everybody, we've been having a wee drag down here, and it's time for a new episode of Q Presents The Making Of. And my name is Mike Scott. Okay? The new album sounds excellent. Thank you. Do I sit here? Yep, you down there. Can I get you there's some water there? Do you want a tea or a coffee? Um, no. No? No thanks, <laughs> I've just had one. I've just had a tea or a coffee. Have you been doing many chats yet about the, uh, oh, the record? It must be around about 20 now. You're 20 in already? Yeah, I think so. About that. That's when you just, that's, that's the sweet spot. Just before you get tired of talking about it. <laughs> <coughs> um, so you know what this is we're going to go through uh, the past and the present yeah a little bit of future alright <laughs> hello listener and welcome to Q Presents The Making Of a weekly podcast brought to you by the world's best music magazine Q we go deep into the lives of the great music makers of our time each week we meet up with a famous artist and ask them to take us on a voyage through the past, through their lives and music. We ask the big questions. Who are they? Where did their music come from? What was the music that inspired them? And what makes them tick? My name is Niall Doherty, sitting in for your usual host Ted Kessler, and our guest this week is Mike Scott. Mike is the founder, frontman and ringleader of the Waterboys, the main player in a revolving door of musicians that over the years has included 80 and more collaborators. For over three decades, Mike has been one of music's true outsiders, a force of nature who reinvented rock in the mid-80s with sweeping sonic panoramas that came to be known after one of his own songs as the Big Music. Just as he was experiencing huge success, however, Mike grew tired of the formulas and tropes of traditional rock music and became an artist who's followed his muse rather than doing what's expected of him. He's made music that's taken in Celtic soul, country, folk, blues and more. His new album, Where the Action Is, is another left turn, featuring both a reworking of a 60s northern soul single and a nine-minute reading from The Wind in the Willows. He's made a career out of being a hard man to pin down, but we have Mike here today in our central London studio. Hello, Mike. How are you? I'm fine, now. You've got me pinned here in your studio. <laughs> how, how, how was that as a little synopsis of your uh, over three decades in music? Pretty good. Pretty good. Was it okay? Yeah, Pass I'd like to muster. meet that guy. <laughs> well, he's here today. So let's, let's start with talking about where the action is. Yep. It's your 13th album under the Waterboys handle. Thank you for counting. Uh, yeah, it's not my forte, but uh, I had Wikipedia to help me. <clears throat> uh, does it get any easier to make records? Technology makes it easier because I, I can record at home now. Right. I've got a studio in my computer. So I can record any time I want. I don't have to book studio time, try and get the right place, make sure it's available, tell everybody to be there on a certain day. None of that. I just go down to my studio. I've got my own place and, and work any time I like. Whereabouts is that? Dublin. And do, do, you, do you sort of readily embrace that? There's some artists who sort of um, avoid and eschew the new wave of technology with which you can make music. 
you know, I was slow to come to it, but I, I bought a new computer about 10 years ago. And when I got it home, I found it had this thing called GarageBand in it. Yeah. And I thought, oh, no, it's one of these computer programs for recording. I'll probably never be able to work it. But I had a look at it. And within about half an hour, I was recording. It's you cracked very it that easy, quickly. yeah. And of course, I'm so experienced in recording. I didn't take that into account that actually I know what I'm doing. Yeah. So you tech savvy then? Am I what? Are you tech savvy? Tech savvy with GarageBand, yeah. I had Pro Tools as well, but I found most of my brain power was running the system with that. There wasn't so much left for the creativity. Yeah. So that wasn't fun. Does it take a bit of adjustment if you're working from a home studio, where you know if you've got studio time, you yep. know you have to get it done? Yeah. How, do, how, do, how does that go when you're adjusting to yourself? Do you set yourself deadlines? No, I just get on with it. But I, I'm, a, I'm a parent now. I've got two young children. And that means I, I'm always under the gun time-wise. Right. I, I can now do in three hours what used to take me three days. Right. What was your mindset at the start of this record? Did you know what you wanted to do? It actually began as a weird mash-up album. I'd finished the previous record and I had about ten odd instrumentals left over and I started doing weird weird vocal accents and things like pretending to be a Cockney or a broad <laughs> Scottish accent Yeah, uh, and I was going to make a left field, field album maybe put it out under another name but little by little these weird left field mashups began to turn into songs and then slowly it became a, a regular Waterboys album and what is the point at which you can see an album taking shape do you just work until you've got a record, or is it is it something that takes direction halfway through? This one was like that. About halfway through, when I had five or six songs that I could see were proper Waterboys songs, and I knew, all right, this is going to be an album, a Waterboys album. What is a Waterboys song to you that stops it from being something under it, another name? It's more... What's not a Waterboys song? See, see these mashups that I was working on with, with my Scottish accent or my, my Cockney accent... Um, they're the kind of things that if I put them out in a Waterboys record, a lot of people would complain. They'd right. want their money back. They'd be very angry on social media. <laughs> uh, and if it's not going to have that effect, then it's probably a real Waterboys track. Do you pay attention to social media and what yeah, people are saying about a, you? A bit, yeah. A bit. Well, you dip in and out. Well, I, I'm very active on Twitter. Yeah. Twitter's my speed. I like that. But in terms of, do, do you care what people <clears throat> think? No. No. But it's interesting. I'm interested in what they think, but yeah. I don't care, if you know what I mean. <laughs> have you always been like that? Did you read reviews when you were younger? Yeah, I have a rule that, that I, I, I developed very early on. I will read every review, good or bad, once. Right. If I read them twice, they tend to stick in my mind too much. And if they're very good, that means a swelled head. And if they're very bad, it means I'm, I'm got, I've got a liability. So I'd rather just read them once and move on. Is that something you learn over time? I mean, that sounds yeah, like... It's fairly quickly, actually. Do you know, we had a review from Gavin Martin. He's a great mate of mine. He was also a great rock journalist. And he reviewed my band's second single back in 1980. And he, he said, this band's... Potty retrospectives are just meaningless. <laughs> I must have read that one more than once because I can still remember it today. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remind him of that? Did I have reminded him of that, yeah. 
But that's good if you can separate the person from the review. I don't think I, every artist... You know, some reviews are very helpful, actually. Some reviews that, that are critical, like that one, I learned from. And Gavin was actually right about our potty retrospectives. It was a blind alley we were going up, and, and he kind of gave me a reality check. And th- through my career, now and then, there have been great, great bad reviews right. that have helped me understand where I'm not quite going right. Uh, I'm grateful for that. It's an, another NME journalist, Stuart Bailey, did a few for me around about 1990 that it just helped me r- r- just change my focals, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I mean, you you talked about that this record was born out of some outtakes from the last record. Yeah. I mean, the last record was like a double album. Yep. This one's very <clears throat> direct, 10 tracks. Yep. Do you find yourself working in um, in sort of opposition to what you've just done? Sometimes, yeah, not not as a policy, but just tends to happen that way. And with this one, uh, uh, see, the last record was a double album. It was even a triple album if you bought the version with a bonus disc. And it was too long, I think. And I think it was too long for people to to give time to. It's not 1976 anymore when double albums were the thing. And people are moving so fast. There's so many records fighting for attention. I said double album doesn't have the same power now. So I, I really didn't want to repeat that and I wanted to make this one very focused and direct. Do you find yourself taking things like that, the cultural context into account? The fact that people might not sit down and listen to a double record? Well, I should have done, but I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so I wish someone you learned had from said making to me, one. Yeah. yeah. What's, um, what's the, what song on the new record means the most to you? Mm, I, I don't know that I would pick one out, but... Uh, let's Piper at the Gates of Dawn, which closes the record. I've always loved that passage from The Wind and the Willows, and uh, I'm very happy with how it turned out. Also, the way the, the, the four guys in the band played on that track. We, we did it in one take at Real World Studios. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to Real World Studios. It was a very beautiful studio, and you look out the windows, and there's a lake and trees, lots of nature. And we worked there for a couple of days, recorded a couple of the tracks, and then we did this... At the time, it was an instrumental of the Piper to Gates of Dawn. And I think the band are playing in music what they'd been looking at through the windows for the previous two days. Right. Yeah. And you'd had that um, excerpt in your head for a long time that you wanted to work with it, is that right? I had, yes. I'd actually set it to music about ten years ago. Uh, I was playing some midsummer concerts, and we had a didgeridoo player guesting with us. Now, the didgeridoo is not the most versatile of instruments. It can play one note. And this chap's didgeridoo was a D didgeridoo. So I needed a song where every chord worked with D. So I wrote this little piece of piano music. The first chord was D, the second was G major 7, the third was A suspended, the fourth was a return to G major 7. They all have D in them and when we played it with the didgeridoo it was very beautiful, it really worked and that was Piper at the Gates of Dawn. So we did it at a concert ten years ago and I got a good recording of it and every time I've made an album since then I've gone back to that recording and I thought, could I put this on the record? But it wasn't quite polished enough for a record Right. It's okay for a live recording, but not for a record. So on this album, finally, we recorded a new version. Do you have that a lot? With there's there's songs that you come back to that you've got in the back of your mind. Oh yes, yes, I've got. Well, it used to be books of songs. Now it's computer folders. Yeah. I mean, the new record also contains a song called "London Mick." <clears throat> yep. Which is a tribute to the Clash's Mick Jones. Yes, indeed. Uh, and you've previously written a song about Keith Richards called yep. Mr Charisma. Is it important to you to salute your heroes? 
it's you know, I think a lot about musicians and I read a lot of musical biographies and music's the, the thing that occupies me most of the time. Making it, thinking about it, reading about it, living it. Uh, and so probably no surprise that I write songs about other musicians. I've got I Can See Elvis was a couple of albums ago. I've got Has Anybody Here Seen Hank about Hank Williams? I even had one, it was a very obscure one, it was on a B-side called Beatles Reunion Blues about a dream I had about the Beatles reforming but not being very good. Right. Yeah. Well, that might that might have been how it panned out. Might have been, yeah. It might have been. Yeah. Have you ever considered doing a concept album about these tracks that you've been formulating? No, no, no. no. I, I grew up through the punk punk era. Concept album's a dirty term to me. But you've also just done a double album a few years ago. Yeah, what, double album. What, yeah. Would, what would the punk you say about that? <sighs> well, the Clash did London Calling, you see, so maybe they made it okay. Yeah. Talking about the you sort of growing up as a punk. What was it about punk at that time that appealed to you? Well, I loved the rebellion of it. I was 17 when Anarchy in the UK came out. And, of course, I'd loved rock and roll since I was seven or eight years old. But it had become very staid and safe in the mid-70s. And even the most interesting people like Roxy Music and Bowie had begun to... Got, began to get a bit bit stale and then suddenly there's Anarchy in the UK and God Save the Queen and White Riot and all these fantastic records and they were rebellious I'd love the Stones I loved the story about the Stones pissing on the garage wall all that side of it Brian Jones being a bad boy I still love all that and here, here were the Sex Pistols and the Clash making rock naughty and dangerous again brilliant what were you like at that point, as a 17-year-old? Uh, I was a long-haired 17-year-old, um, playing in my own band, playing around the town of Ayr, yeah. the west coast of Scotland. And you'd relocated there from Edinburgh, Yeah, right? I, 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 born in Edinburgh, I lived there till I was 12, then my mum changed job. I lived with my mum and we moved to Ayr and there was no real music scene in Ayr. We played in local hotels. Sometimes we would have to hire the function suite print the tickets ourselves and sell them to our mates and it, we would have small audiences and, and somehow we managed to get through our gigs without without getting beaten up even though we were playing pretty vacant and things like that what was the like what was the local music scene like i mean if there was no gigs but it sounds like you were sort of making your own diy scene yeah well there, there were gigs if you would play the top 20 Right. And there were some bands that were really good at that and would play uh, agricultural dances. In terms of cover bands? Yeah. And they'd play everything that was in the top 20. But that, we, we, we weren't good enough to play the top 20 and we didn't want to anyway. We wanted to play uh, songs by our heroes and, and write our own songs. And there were only a few places that would have us. There was a music club on a Saturday afternoon at the Darlington Hotel, booked by a chap called Tom Jones, not the same one, obviously. Right. And he gave us a gig, sort of 40-minute gig on a Saturday lunchtime. That was the sort of height of the ambition if you were going to stay in air. Yeah. So we had to get out and we moved to Edinburgh. And I had a band in Edinburgh for a couple of years called Another Pretty Face. Even though I was from Edinburgh, I always thought that the people in the Edinburgh scene regarded me as an incomer because I'd come with my pals from Ayr. Right. We were never quite accepted on the Edinburgh scene. You had to keep explaining that you were born there as well. Exactly, yeah. What was the first song you wrote? Uh, My first song I wrote was called My People Were Fair and Had Sky in Their Hair, which was stolen from a T-Rex album title. Right. Yeah. So it was you already sort of setting your own sonic template? Ah, oh, yeah, doing my well, doing Mark Bowen's thing, which became my own thing. Yeah. 
When did you think I could actually do this? As oh, a... I was already thinking that. Right. From about 1968, when I was nine or ten, I, I fell in love with records, you see. I, later, I'd fall in love with girls. You know that feeling of falling in love and being obsessed with, with someone. Yeah. And, and I used to get that feeling about records. And I would have heard the new record might have been Listen to Me by the Hollies. And I wouldn't be able to settle until I could hear it again. and just have to hear it again and listen to the radio all the time until it came back on. And then finally I would be able to buy my own copy and play it and play it and play it and play it. I'd be in love with a record. And all I wanted to do from that time on was make records to be in music. What was the first record you did make? The first recording I made was in a studio in London in 1976. I was 17, just before punk happened, and I recorded a version of Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone. It's a studio called Portobello Studios on Lancaster Road. Yeah. And and I, I, I phoned the guy up and I said I'd like to hire some studio time. He had an ad in the back of Melody Maker, you see. It was £8 an hour. And I could afford that because I'd had a summer job. And I came down to London on holiday with my mum and, and I booked the studio time. And the guy said, how long do you want? And I said, well, I'm going to record a, a version of Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone. It's a five-minute song. I'm going to play five instruments. I need 25 minutes. He said to me, I think you might need a bit longer than that. So I booked the enormous sounding time of three hours and I turned up and I recorded it and, and I had thought I would walk into a studio and the sound would it, it would already sound like Abbey Road by the Beatles or Effortless. Highway 61 but it didn't we had to start from scratch and he had a little piano there it was an electric piano it sounded like like, uh, like the piano on the Sooty show or something and it was incredibly difficult just to get the sounds and then to play in the, the antiseptic atmosphere of a studio which I'd never been in before somehow I got I got my Like a Rolling Stone recorded in my three hours, but I didn't get it mixed. I had to book more time, come back a couple of days later. It took all my holiday money, all the money I'd saved from my, from my summer job. And I listened to it recently. It's absolutely terrible. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> but you, did you get that buzz from it? Obviously. I did, yeah. It because... was an amazing experience to do it and to overdub on top of, top of my own playing. Yeah. Amazing. Wow. And then at that point, you were in a, in those early years, you were in a few different bands before you got to the Waterboys phase. Yeah, two or three on the way to the Waterboys, yeah. Did you ever think it wouldn't happen for you? No. No? No. You always had that no. belief? Yeah. Yeah, all, all, this was all I wanted to do. And did the Waterboys feel like you'd finally arrived at that moment? Because from then on, it was fairly quick, wasn't it? Well, the Waterboys themselves, as, as, a, as a thing, took a long time to happen. I had a record deal with Enzyme Records. I signed to them in 1981 with my old band, Another Pretty Face. And we made a few recordings and then the band split up. Enzyme kept the deal with me. I was living in London by that time and they must have kept me going for Enzyme paying my bills and giving me advances for a couple of years before, before any more records came out. They really supported me in a way that labels don't really do anymore. And they gave me the time to figure out who I was and what I was going to do. And, and I'm really grateful for that. It was a really great thing. Even though we often disagreed about the direction of the music, even the disagreements were helpful because they helped me find out what I wasn't. Yeah. And eventually a record came out. I didn't have a band it was just me. The first record was called A Girl Called Johnny. There was a sax player on the record called Anthony Thistlethwaite. And I really wanted him to come and stick with me, but he didn't seem very interested. 
And then I met him at a gig in a pub in Fulham, and he'd been listening to the recordings we'd made, and he came up and he said, I get it now. I get it. When are we going to do some gigs? So for me, that was the beginning of the Waterboys. What was it that he got? Did he ever explain further? He understood the songs. It was a song called The Girl in the Swing, and it had a line on it about one rides for a woman who has no name, one rides for a king, and one just rides and rides and rides and rides for the girl in the swing. And he quoted that line to me in the pub as if to say, now I understand. Did you always have a really um, clear vision of what you wanted to do? All throughout the Waterboys' career, you've always really stuck to your guns. Mm. Were you always like that, or is yeah, that pretty something... much? Yeah, always very strongly driven, and I, the music would tell me what to do. I would would have, have it would be like getting my instructions. A song, I would write a song, and the song would seem to unfold in my mind in a particular form that had to be the sound when I recorded it. Yeah, I'd write a song, and I would feel yes, it's got to be this rhythm, and, and these instruments should be on it. It was like a blueprint in my mind, and I would go down, and, and I would tell the guy at the record company and he'd say oh well you should do this and you should do that and we'd have a fight about it I mean did you so did you have to fight for things were yeah you, were absolutely. you good at that yeah I was good yeah um, the guy at the record company was a man called Nigel Grange he was a, one of the great record men of the 70s and 80s he discovered the Boomtown Rats he, he was a, a, a an A&R man at Phonogram Records I think he picked Things like you wait it well to be a single from Rod Stewart's album. He had a lot of success behind him. And he never tired of telling me how many great singles he'd picked <laughs> as, as if to, to big himself up for the arguments that we would have. And sometimes he won the arguments and, and the song that he wanted ended up as the single or on the album. But sometimes I won too. Did it was you, very character building. You've worked with a lot of collaborators in The Waterboys, yeah. as we've mentioned earlier. Um, have you always felt like a good leader? in terms of encouraging that spirit of collaboration? No, it took me a while to learn how to be a band leader. It, it, in the early days, it was a struggle. It was, there was a lot of conflict. And I remember I would often be unhappy with what a musician was playing, but I wouldn't have the... I might have the musical language to tell them what I didn't like, but I didn't have the personal skills to tell them in a diplomatic way. And I remember once I had a girlfriend called Lynn Goldsmith. She was a famous American photographer, and she'd been around a lot of musicians. It's about 1985 when we made This Is The Sea, and she was at a rehearsal, and I was very frustrated with, with the drummer because he couldn't understand that I wanted it to be played a particular way. And, and I was on the verge of saying something not so kind to him and she took me outside and she said look just just change yourself before you go back in just change yourself and be kind to him he's doing his best be understanding and and encourage him draw it out of him and she was absolutely right it was a great lesson to learn yeah can you remember the names of everyone you've collaborated with you mean band members yeah oh yeah of course have you ever considered getting them all together? No. Giant Waterboys <laughs> gig. It could happen. It'd be very, very funny. I mean, tell me about that time around This Is The Sea, <clears throat> and especially um, the writing of Hole of the Moon. Mm. Well, Hole of the Moon was begun in New York. I'd gone to New York to meet a prospective manager, a big-time American manager. And I, I had a, my preview, my prior girlfriend was hanging out with me and asked me was it easy to write a song 
and I was showing off and I said yes it's very easy to write a song I'll write one now and I had a scrap of paper in my pocket and a pen and, and I looked around for inspiration and there was a moon in the sky I can't remember if it was a crescent or a full moon but whichever it was it sparked this idea about I saw the crescent you saw the whole of the moon and I wrote it down I showed it to her she was impressed and then I got back to the town and I wrote some more more of the song and then when I got back to London I wrote the rest of it, it took me about three months though to, to write the whole song right but you still proved yourself right that yeah on the spot you could write I a could life come up with something hit. yeah when did at what point did you tell um or could you tell that that was going to be a huge song when it was getting mixed i recorded it without thinking of it as a single did the whole process of putting all the instruments on and the the trumpet solo and Carl, all Carl Wallinger's parts and backing vocals and, and then finally mixed it. I mixed it with a man called Mick Glossop, who's a very great and experienced British producer. And while it, while the mix was playing, I thought to myself, oh, 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 everybody's going to love this. And, and that was when I got the sense of it. And how did it feel being sort of in the middle of a song? I mean, there's only a few songs a decade or a generation that become that sort of huge where they're ingrained that almost everyone knows them. How does it feel being the artist responsible for one of those tracks? I'm very pleased. I made a classic. I'm very happy about that. But then it sort of prompted some success that you um, that you struggled with. I, this is the popular myth about the Waterboys. Here we go. You can I break it now. Yeah, I don't think it's true. The Whole of the Moon was released as a single. It got to number 26 in the charts in 1985. In fact, I didn't even want them to put it out as a single straight away. Right. They they put it out as the first single from the album. And, you know, we weren't a very well-known band. Our second album, A Pig in Place, had maybe got to about number 30 in the charts or something. We were, we were just coming up. And we made This Is The Sea, I knew it had the chance to be very successful. And I thought, Hole of the Moon's a single, make it the second single from the album, release something something up-tempo to get people's attention, and then hit them with the killer one. And nobody listened to me, and they put the Hole of the Moon out too quickly, and I think that blew it. And my life then went in another direction I moved to Ireland I, I had lost interest in that what you call that sweeping panoramic sound good description and I had taken it as far as I could and I wanted to do something else and a fiddler called Steve Wickham had joined the band and suddenly I could play music with him that was very organic just my guitar and his, his fiddle and Thistlethwaite the sax player we were talking about he, he suddenly produced a mandolin and turned out to be an absolutely beautiful mandolin player. And the three of us together made this wonderful organic acoustic music that, that opened a new direction for me. I followed that direction, not thinking it wouldn't be successful, thinking absolutely this was going to be the next phase in the band's sound, it's going to do better than the last. In fact, it did. The Fisherman's Blues album yeah, that came out was our biggest selling album. Well, the Whole of the Moon, meanwhile, became a cult favourite on the rave scene. Right. It's a big hit in Balearic, is that how you say it? it Balearic yeah. discos. And by 1991, by which time I'd finished the whole fiddle, mandolin, acoustic adventure, it was reissued and became a huge hit. Oh, hello. You're listening to Q Presents The Making Of. Okay. Was that switch into that folky sound met with resistance from the people you were talking about at the label? Yeah. Oh, yeah. What's he doing? He's gone mad. Yeah. What was life like for you out there on the, on the west coast of Ireland? 
Oh, I didn't go to the West Coast straight away. I went to Dublin. Right. And made most of Fisherman's Blues in a studio in Dublin, Windmill Lane. And it was very exciting. And we were touring as well. We were very, very busy. And the band was just firing on all cylinders. We did this amazing gig at Glastonbury, still preserved on a, a, a bootleg album. And it was a great, great time for us. And I was writing songs so fast. And I had a band that was able to improvise on stage and in the studio, which I'd never had before. Do you, what, what did you prefer, playing live or being in the studio? I loved them both. Still do. Do you like sort of keeping an equal footing in both? You know, because some people, I mean, mm. you've put out so many records. Yeah. Some people become like studio heads. Yeah, well, you get the Jeff Lynne type character who's uncomfortable on stage and at home in the studio. I'm not like that. But when I'm recording, I like to get absorbed in it. Yeah. I quite like having a bit of separation so that when I'm recording, I don't have to tour and I can I can dedicate myself to that side of it. And then when I'm touring, once the record comes out and I'm on tour, I don't really want to have to record. I don't want pressure to record till the touring's finished. How did that late 80s success change you? Well, we we our biggest success was from about... 88 when Fisherman's Blues came out until 93 and we had uh, the big hit with the whole moon we had a big best of album that was a hit and, and a few albums around that Room to Roam, Dream Harder but you know most of that time I wasn't so happy not not because the records were doing well I was very happy about that but the, things weren't right in the band Steve Wickham or Fiddler left I missed him dreadfully, I missed him personally, I missed him musically. And I moved to New York just when the Waterboys were selling the most records. I did a huge record deal with Geffen Records. They gave me some ridiculous amount of money and unlimited studio time. But I'd lost my, my great musical brother. And I was trying new players in New York and I couldn't find a band that, that I felt, that, that felt like a band. I played with some great musicians, but yeah. nothing felt like a band, and I wasn't happy. Is that a really important thing for you, that chemistry? Yeah, absolutely. So how did you respond to it when you didn't have it? I went solo. I made a one-man album, playing everything myself. Like your original recording of uh, Bob Dylan? Not quite. I, I spared the world having to listen to me playing drums, which I had <laughs> done on my, my Like a Rolling Stone recorder. I didn't play drums, played everything else. And that was called Bring Them All In. It came out as a solo record in, in the mid-90s. And so I had three or four years of being a solo artist. And it was okay when I was a one-man band, playing shows just on my own. It was a very good experience for me, actually. It taught me a lot about how to sustain a conversation with an audience. I realised I hadn't hadn't ever properly learned how to be comfortable with an audience. I'd always hidden behind the band concept. And suddenly been out there just on my own, I had to there was an audience in the room and there was me. And I had to find a way to be relaxed with the audience. And I did. It was a great experience. Then I put a band together, still touring as Mike Scott, but I didn't enjoy that. If there was a band it should be the Waterboys. Yeah. It was really weird standing in front with this Mike Scott band. 
And it wasn't fair in the musicians either. They were every bit as good as anyone who'd ever been in the Water Boys, and they, they collaborated with me and put in their own ideas, just like Water Boys would, yet they didn't have the status. So I decided I'm not doing this again. Next record will be a Water Boys record. And almost now that series of records are sort of considered as, if you look at Water Boys discographies, mm. they're put in there, but then in brackets it just oh, says, yeah. as Mike Scott. Yeah. So it's been reconsidered. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of Next, there was a, like probably the only point in your career where you weren't as prolific when you're entering the sort of late 90s early noughties mm. well I had two albums I had one in 2000 called The Rock and the Weary Land it was the Waterboys combat record and that's a record I'm really pleased with I worked hard on that and I had a burst of songs that had come very quickly but then I, I, I dried up a lot songwriting wise the next album was called Universal Hall. It came out in 2003, recorded at the Fintorn Spiritual Community where I was living. And just wasn't recorded to my usual standards. It was the best I could do at the time. I just think my mind was on other things. My mind was on my spiritual education. It wasn't on rock and roll. Yeah. And I was living away from a city. I was out of touch. Out of touch with what was happening. Out of touch with competition and... Never going into a regular recording studio. And I think the record and the next one, which came out four years later, I think they show that. The next one was called Book of Lightning. And they're my two records that I never, ever listened to. Maybe play a few of the songs live. And I always enjoy doing them because I can improve them from the versions that were on the album. But as albums, I think they're my poorest work. And what was it like living at Fintorn? How did you, how did you get up there? Findhorn, you know, I first went there in 1992 when I was living in New York when I was making the record on Geffen and my mum had been there she'd been there for a weekend workshop a spiritual healing workshop and she told me about the place and, and I saw a video I was in a, a, a new age bookshop in America and I saw a video about Findhorn I thought oh I'll watch this and the video was fantastic it was an old lady who lived at the community talking about her spiritual experiences and just fantastic, blew me away. It was everything that I, at the t that moment in my life, I really needed to hear. And I, I knew I'm going to go to this place, I'm going to see what happens, and, and I did. I went, I did a week-long workshop, which had a profound effect on me. I went back six months later, and then I went back to live. I lived there for a year and a half in the mid-90s, made the Bring Em All In album, in this tiny little studio in the community. Right. Some bright spark had built a studio there in the 70s. It's still there. And then I went back to London for, for seven years, but then I went back to Fintorn, lived there from 2002 to 2008. And that was a, a very interesting experience, living in a spiritual community and yet being a touring rock musician. Yeah. With a foot in both worlds. How did that work? Because sort of worlds that don't really go hand in hand with each other well at first it was very difficult I would have been having my experiences at the spiritual community and then suddenly I'd go back into cities with all the noise and the, 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 the masses of people and, and, and I would feel I'd feel very stressed because a, a good spiritual community if it's, if it's worth its salt it's going gonna, it's gonna to open the individual up and Fintorn did that with me and I became very aware of of my own internal emotional or mental processes in a way I'd never been and also other people's and 
that's all very well when you're in the spiritual community and it's a safe space to explore that. But when I would come out and suddenly find myself in London or Amsterdam or New York for a gig, I, I would find it almost overwhelming being back in a city atmosphere yeah. with all the because here we are in central London there are millions of people around us and they all have emotions and they all all have thoughts and those thoughts and emotions are swirling around in the atmosphere of London now we're okay because we're used to it we're not picking it all up we're, we're not having a psychic experience but when I would come out of Findhorn not necessarily a psychic experience but I would be having a very strong emotional response to whatever was going on in the place I found myself yeah and it took me a few years to learn how to not so much to shut that down but to protect myself how to toughen up and I would use little meditation techniques to to make it easier for me to walk between the two worlds I also had to be careful coming back to Fintorn because I would be tougher and louder and disrupt the uh, the yeah. nice vibes yeah exactly yeah you're okay down here because we're in the Q bunker, so we're away yeah. from the urban environment for yeah. four f- floors above us. Um, after Findhorn and after that period, sort of post 2008, 2009, you start to enter that uh, prolific period again. Yeah. What was the, what was the spark for it? Moving back to Dublin, I'd always missed Dublin. Desperate to get back to a city. I'd done my time in Findhorn. Didn't need to be there anymore really I was really hungry to find myself in a city with all the, the stimulation and the inspiration competition so I moved back to Dublin got on with the appointment for Mr Yeats project which I'd been working on for some time this was uh, the poems of WB Yeats turned into songs and it also meant I was able to work closer with Steve Wickham who lives in Ireland and he was he was my number one collaborator on that record and what, what was it about Dublin that pulled you in out of all the cities? So creative. I'd been very happy living there in the 80s. I wrote more songs in Dublin than anywhere else, so I really wanted to go back there. Out of all the places you've lived, where most feels like home? Dublin and the west of Ireland. Galway. Um, in terms of if you had to play someone one, one of your songs hmm. and they'd never heard a Waterboys or a Mike Scott song, which one would you choose? Well, I'd probably play them something from the new record, like Where the Action Is, because that's that's who I am now. If I was to play them something from the old days, Fisherman's Blues, maybe. What do you think the new record says about you in 2019? Oh, gosh, that's, a, that's a, such a journalistic question. How can I answer that? <laughs> I don't know. Well, it's a lot of different kinds of music on one record, so I suppose it says that... We're not bounded by any specific style or genre, but I I don't, it's hard to look at oneself from the outside like that. Yeah. Did you what did you struggle then writing your autobiography? Because that must have taken a lot of self-observation. Fortunately, it was all old stuff. You see, it's hard to say what the new album says. Do you know if you ask me that question in 10 years, I can tell you exactly what this album says. Yeah. It's time is the thing that gives the perspective. When I was writing my book, it was all stuff that happened at least 15 years before. It was easy, easy to look back and have a sense of it. Yeah. 
And your your tracks have been covered lots. Yeah. Prince, Tom Jones, Steve mm-hmm. Earle. Have you ever heard a version of your song that's better than the version you did? Oh, I have, yeah. Yeah. Um, yes, I heard one very recently. What was it? Yes, I even, I even tweeted about it and said it's better than our version, but I can't remember what it was now. When no. are you happiest? When am I happiest? Um, when my daughter and her stepmom get on really well together. Right. How has being a father changed you? Well, it was the first time dad at 54. Mentally, emotionally, I'm glad that I'm I'm smarter. I'm glad that I had my children late. Yeah. I'm wiser. I've got more time to respond. Like Teddy Sheringham in the late days of his career, I've got that time, <laughs> that awareness that makes up for the lack of speed. Yeah. But physically, it's tough. Even lifting my little boy, he's two years old and he, he's heavy. Lifting him up, my arms are constantly sore. Because I'm 60. Yeah. I don't have the same recovery power that I had in my 30s. But it's fantastic. It's the most wonderful experience. And also very good creatively. My daughter is six. And every time we go walking, when I take her to school, she says to me, well, what happened? And this is the doorway into our world of storytelling. And we have this story that goes on that mostly I make up, but she makes up bits of it too, about uh, a bunch of wizards and their, their families. And I'm constantly making up these stories, which is helpful because it means the wheels of my creativity are moving yeah. all the time. So I go down to my little studio and shifting into writing songs is very easy. Q presents The Making Of. Okay, we're going to tap into your wheels of creativity now. Have you ever heard of the uh, you remember the magazine Smash Hits? Yes. Did you ever did you ever do the biscuit tin with Smash Hits? No. Where you would pick out a question. No. Uh, and this is our biscuit tin, which is a <laughs> giffy envelope. Excellent. <laughs> so we'll do a few. I'll give it a shake. Yeah. Where did these come from? The psychedelic minds of the Q team. Oh. And okay. and some of the traditional ones that Smash Hits used okay. to use. So I just pick one out. Yeah. What's the one thing that would instantly improve your quality of life? Hmm. Do you want a long-winded response or should I be No, if you keep it long-winded. Well, I consider the quality of my life is very high. I get to go around the world making a living out of what I want to do most. Yeah. I've got enough money to live on. I've got two kids. Uh, and a wife, and we're very happy. I've got a band that's very settled and very happy. So what else instantly improved my quality of life? Trump resigning would make me very happy indeed. Yeah. I mean, if you were, when you were living in New York, he must have been a, quite a big presence then in terms of the 80s entrepreneur coming up. I'm afraid I don't think he ever crossed my mind once. Right. You were never living in the penthouse at Trump Tower? No, never. I think I may have noticed the name Trump or the word Trump on buildings towards the end of my time in New York, but he never crossed my consciousness, no. Would you struggle to live there now? Do you know, I had a place in New York for five years, 2011 to 2016, a second 
place and I spent quite a lot of time there. I got a lot of friends in New York. I was part of a gang of musicians in New York and I had great times there, but it has changed and it's, it's more a money center now. It's much less creative and it's much harder for bands and artists to make it out of New York. There's no, there's no route anymore. Yeah. Is there any bands you see coming up now that remind you of the Waterboys or remind you of yourself? Mm. Not really, no. Some bands that I like, but uh, no, I'm not reminded of myself, no. Do you want to dip back into yep. the biscuit tin? What's your favourite restaurant? Uh, my favourite restaurant is Dun and Crescenzi in Dublin. It's near Grafton Street, right in the middle of Dublin, Italian restaurant. I've been going there for years. Before I was married, I used to go in every day. Now, maybe twice a week. I always eat the same thing. What do you order? Penny arrabbiata um, with a short... Uh, penny arrabbiata or short pasta with arrabbiata if they don't have penny. And I have a mozzarella salad Mike style. I've ordered it so many times they've, they've named they've it after me. They've tailored it, right. Yeah. What is Mike style? It's got cherry tomatoes <clears throat> and rocket. What about dessert? No, I wouldn't have dessert. An espresso, espresso macchiato. Normal style or Mike style? Normal style. <laughs> Going in for your third dip. Yeah, third dip. Do you floss? Actually, no, I don't. I did for many years. I learned it from a, a, a dentist in New York. But now I use these little plastic things, these little serrated plastic things that a dentist gave me in Dublin, and they're, they're deadly. Brilliant. Right. What do you mean you learnt it from a dentist in New York where they taught you the ancient ways of flossing? I had never even thought of flossing. It had crossed my mind as many times as Donald Trump. And then I went to a dentist in New York, I had someone wrong with my teeth, and he said, you know, you should floss. And I said, what's flossing? So he showed me and I started doing it. And well, of course, when I saw the, the amount of rubbish that came out from between my teeth, I, I kept doing it. Yeah. Okay, let's go again. Back in. Yep. They're all different sizes, I like that. Have you ever been mistaken for someone else? Oh, yes, indeed. Since I was a schoolboy, people have said, well, maybe not mistaking me, but they've said, you look like Mick Jagger. Yeah. And I have to accept, he does look a lot like me. As a Rolling Stones fan, that must have been a good one. Yeah, great. As I get older, people say, you look like that guy from Aerosmith. Steve Tyler. Right, another guy who probably got mistaken for Mick Jagger's. Yes, he was indeed. Up. Yes, we could start a club. Couldn't we? <laughs> do you get Do you get recognised? Oh yes, I do. Yes, thankfully more than people say Steve Tyler or Mick Jagger. And how do you deal with it? Do you Do you like it? I do. Yes, I think I've got a sort of force field around me that that slows people down when they get to me. Right. I've got a sort of well practiced, long serving rock and rollers force field around me. <laughs> Let's have one final dip into yep. the biscuit tin. If you are reincarnated, what would you like to come back as? It's a funny question. It's easy to give us a shallow answer. Difficult to give a, a serious answer. Shallow ones are fine. Shallow ones are fine, yeah. I think so too. A cat that lives in a good home. That is that is the dream life. It's a common Sleeping in food. Yeah, sleeping in front of a warm fire. 
Pudding. Yes. And on that note, your visit to the Q Presents The Making Of is complete, Mike. Thank you very much for being our guest this week. Thank Uh, Thank you to producer Sue. And thank you to you, the listener, for listening. Uh, Please remember to rate us and subscribe on iTunes. Uh, We will be taking a short break for a couple of weeks, but only a short one, so don't panic. We'll be back soon for season two of Q Presents The Making Of. My name is Niall Doherty. Thank you for listening. If you can come in a little bit closer to the mic, especially as you haven't got headphones on the side. Hello. Hello there. We're here today to discuss the influence of Neil Diamond. (laughs) I've got I've got the totally Scottish football show here. I'm oh. sitting in the wrong seats. I've got the football league show, mm. not the Premiership. No, the football it must league. be that must be a special. Maybe it's the chair next to you, the mm. empty chair. You're a more Premiership sort of guy. You should have got the Premiership one. My name, My name is, is Mike Scott, Scott, and this is Q presents the making of.